Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you so much for your prayers. We really do covet your prayers. Uh, you know, Baltimore is, a, is an interesting city. You know, it's dope on one side, you know, depending on what side of town you're on, and it's rough on other parts. And so we came here because we didn't want to be tourists in the city, gospel tourists, but we wanted to be people who invested our lives in the city. And the other aspect of, you know, this desire to plant a church in Baltimore, you know, part of it is why aren't there more people doing it, you know? Why aren't there? I ask that question. People are saying, why are you going to go to Baltimore? You know, you're from Florida. You're from, you know, why would you do something crazy like that? My city's called the city of palms. Like, we got palm trees everywhere. So they're like, Baltimore for what? And um, to that, I would say, or in all seriousness, why not? Um, I want to be one that says, all right, if we believe in this transformative gospel stuff and it becomes this kind of theological jargon that we use, a gospel that can transform dead people to live people, uh, that can take them from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so, man, I want to see what that thing can do. If it can do it, I want to see it happen. And so I want to take it someplace where we can see it happen and flourish, um, not just be something going on. And so we're so excited to be a part of uh, the movement of God in Baltimore. We believe there's a movement of God. We ain't got the answers. We ain't the swaggest, the best out here. But I believe God has been doing a great work in Baltimore for a very long time. And Garden Church has been a part of that. And so, man, I just want to thank you. And I'm really privileged and honored to be able to worship with you guys this morning. Amen? Amen. So, yo, listen, I know y'all are cool and all that, but y'all going to have to talk back to me a little bit. Just to get me through. Y'all good with that? All right, cool. So listen, we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to uh, 32. Not a long passage, and hopefully I won't keep you very long. But um, I just want to share a little bit um, about what it means to have a heart for hard people. Not, not even necessarily a heart, just like this affection, but just what does it mean to look, what does it look like to engage hard people? And uh, we'll go from there. So if you would, uh, hear the word of the Lord. It's just a short little passage. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Here's what the, the word of the Lord says. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. And this, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at, at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Who do, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them simply this, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not one who sought to stay pristine and separate from all of those broken and wounded and dirty people. But you are, the, you are the God who came in and infiltrated the darkness so that we may be reconciled to you, so that we may taste and see your goodness, so that we may be ones that have been transformed from death to life. 
And so we give you thanks and honor for, you, for your son Jesus this morning. And I pray, O oh Lord, that this, this, this word would go forth with power and that, it, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers of your word. That we would come out of here transform people by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't want to be people that just sit by and, and watch as the world passes by us. Um, but Lord, we want to be those who, to, who go out after those in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. We want to be on the offensive, not the defensive. And so I pray, God, that you would empower us by your spirit, you would inform us by your word, and you would make us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there are those who are here that don't know you, I pray that you would crack their hard heart and that you would transform their lives this morning. Only you can do it. I don't, I don't have the answers. I can't do it. But your Holy Spirit can invade and do heart surgery while they sit here in these seats. And so I pray, God, that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So check this out. Just recently, um, I went to, to visit somebody in the hospital. You know, they were in the emergency room. And uh, it's kind of crazy. Uh, you know, you go into the emergency room. Um, and I wanted to go just to be with them because they, you know how the emergency room is. It's very kind of nerve-wracking. Um, it makes you nervous. Now, you don't went there to get help, but you, you done got more nervous just being in there. And so we got this situation. I walked in, um, and, and, and you see, um, you know, an older couple kind of consoling, um, a man kind of hovering over uh, his loved one there. They were kind of clenched over, sitting in the chairs. Um, you could hear people kind of getting frustrated at the nurse's station. They're kind of getting angry. Um, uh, what do you mean my insurance and all this kind of talk and why is this taking so long and all these kinds of things are happening. And then you got the weird feeling too because you, you go to kind of sit. I'm looking for my guy and then I see, you see all these people just with the masks on. So you start to wonder like, are they, do they have something or are they trying to protect themselves from something? Should I sit next to them or not sit next to them? Does it, is it rude that I just want to stand over in the corner? Do I get to, so it's all these questions that are happening and I'm just there to just hang out and, and, and to be a somewhat of a safe place and hang with my brother as he's in the emergency room. And everything about the emergency room is cold and uncomfortable. And their whole goal is to make you comfortable and feel warm inside. But it doesn't work like that. It's sterile, it's nasty, you're all nervous, it's dirty, it's, but you're still in there to be warm and fuzzy inside and feel like you're being helped. Everybody in the emergency room is expectant. They want to see a doctor. They want a doctor to look in on their situation. And even amongst all the chatter, even with Jerry Springer on the TV and Days of Our Lives commercials, even with all that going on, we are all listening closely to hear our name be called by the physician. When we hear our name being called, it gives us a sense of hope that all the pain that I'm feeling, the, 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 the uneasiness that I have, it'll be dealt with in a timely fashion. What's so sad about an emergency waiting room is that people will be in there for hours. They've already gone hours hoping and praying that this thing will relieve itself. But now they're in this emergency room and they've been told to hurry up and wait. 
in the emergency room. And many of us know what it's like to be sick, to be infected with some type of virus, and, the pain, and know the pain you feel when no one seems to be in a hurry to come and see about you. Um, and then when you go to see the people that should be in a hurry to see about you, they tell you to slow down, fill out this paperwork, and just wait. But on the other hand, have you ever gone and actually gotten to the doctor and he almost smiles and smirks and says, you know what, we'll just give you some antibiotics and you'll be good in 24 to 48 hours. There's a sense of relief that you came in here, I'm about to die. I don't know what's going to happen. Jesus, I'm coming to see you. I'm getting my, myself together. This type of pain, I don't know. All I did was stub my toe last night, but I think I'm going to die. It's over. But when they just say, man, 24 to 48 hours, you'll be fine. Drink you some orange juice, get you some rest and you'll be good. Come back and see me in a couple weeks. There's a sense of relief. Even if you're still in the midst of the pain, you go, ah, I'm just hopeful now that someone who knows about my situation has given me a solution and given me some relief. Well, today I'm so excited because we get to talk about this Jesus who actually deals with sin-sick people, who, who specializes who specializes in those who seem to be the hardest and the furthest off from God. See, hard people, we're talking about, you know, what it means to have a heart for hard people, and hard people are those that we would say, you know, most notably are far from God, are most notably ravaged by sin. Those whom we would assume are unsavable. Even as Christians, we have to be very careful because we can begin in the back of our minds go, ah, I don't know. I walk around Baltimore sometimes and you can begin to wonder. I've come here giving up everything in my life in Florida and in other places to go, man, I want to be in a city where I want to see people's lives transform. And even in the midst of that, I can start to wonder, ah, I don't know. But no, this Jesus, he specializes in hard folks. Those who would assume that are unsavable, my God, Jesus, the sole physician, comes in into the emergency rooms of our lives and says, nah, I've got the remedy for your situation. So Jesus, we'll learn in this passage, purposely engages hard people for their ultimate well-being. Jesus purposely engages rough-looking, intimidating, far-off folks for the purpose of their ultimate well-being. And I believe Jesus offers us a model of how we can engage with hard people. First, we'll see that Jesus roams around. Second, we'll see Jesus has a reputation. Jesus also reclines. Man, Jesus liked to chill, you know? He reclines, and Jesus provides a remedy. Can I get some water? Jesus provides a remedy. So check this out. Let's look at verse 27. Thank you, brother. See, y'all got me up here on this shaky stage. I'm 300 pounds. A brother up here relying on Jesus right now. 
Pastor Joel tried to assure me, but this thing done shook two times, Doc. I don't know. No, Doc. I, I believe you, you know, but I, I'm still trusting in Jesus. I'm leaning on the everlasting arms right now. <laughs> so check this out. Verse 27. He went out and saw. Check it out. And, and after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, listen, Jesus was always on the move. He was walking around. He was roaming around. He was kind of out and about. He allowed himself to come into contact with sinners. So this is a point that I think gets overlooked sometimes in, when, we're, when, we're, when we're kind of thinking about and, and looking into the scriptures and thinking about Jesus, we immediately begin to kind of put it into our context. Now that's a natural thing that happens, but sometimes we kind of got to slow down a little bit and rethink about what we're actually seeing in the text. And I don't want you to miss this. Jesus was just walking around all the time. He was always walking around. He wasn't on horseback. He didn't have a horse and carriage. He didn't have any of that. He had on some sandals and hard rocks, and they just walked around all the time. And what that does is, when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're that, in that slow of a situation, it allows you to be in contact with things that you would naturally miss. So some of the beauty, for example, some of the beauty of Baltimore cannot be experienced unless you walk around. Some of the depth of the darkness cannot be fully experienced unless you stop and walk around. But if you're in your car, in the air condition, windows up because you don't want the homeless guy to ask you for nothing and you don't want them to wash your windows, you begin to pass a lot of things that would naturally prick your heart about the beauty of God or the brokenness in the city. And so Jesus here puts himself in a situation. His whole ministry was on foot. He walked around. And so I'm not saying that we need to, you know, go back to the first century and live like Amish folks and try to, you know, try to bring that back. But what I am saying is that we can lose connection with those that God has put us around and put us in proximity to, that we have the opportunity to bring life to. We can go in our home, we can get in our car, we can go to work, we can go to school, we can go through a lot, we can do a lot of things in life. Never really have to come into contact with nobody that's outside of our purview. We can sterilize our, even in Baltimore, we can sterilize our life in such a way as to separate us from the folks that need to hear the gospel the most. So, man, we, and it's interesting that I, as, I, as I walk around and I meet folks in Baltimore, man, and even in churches when I came in this, this morning, I saw all the people coming in to the city to go to church. And they're worshiping all around us right now, and many of them don't have no connection. To the, to the world in the streets around us, to the brokenness. We purposely, in our world today, we can purposely whitewash over all the brokenness because we move so fast through life. And Jesus here kind of reminds us, just subtly, he subtly reminds us that he roamed around intentionally and on purpose. How do we really live here? Do we really live here? Do life here? 
have conversations, know our neighbors to where they can touch us and we can touch them to where our house becomes a place of safe haven. They don't, do they know that? Can they knock on our door? Do they even know that you're a Christian? They can live above us, below us, next to us, sit next to us, and, and nobody would ever even know because we can live in such isolated bubbles. But look at Jesus' life. He was in constant contact with people all the time. Man, he had so many opportunities to, 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 to walk with all kinds of folks, religious folks, demon-possessed folks, poor people, rich people, soft people, and especially hard people. He said simply because he was slow enough to just kind of walk around. So sometimes I pose this to us, and I, I say this to myself, even as a newcomer to the city. Charlie, stop, get out the car, and walk around. You'll be amazed at what conversations pop up all of a sudden. You'll be amazed at what you learn. You'll be amazed at what you hear, and you'll be amazed at the gospel opportunities that you get in these opportunities. Jesus was on the lookout for disciples, and he met Levi at his job. He met Levi at his job. How many times have we been able to just be on the lookout now, we listen to uh, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, and we forget that, man, we can go right outside our door and find disciples. Because we're not looking for them, and we're going, ah, because it's so rough out here, ain't nobody looking for Jesus. But immediately, Jesus walked outside and goes, yo, man, Levi, let's, let's, let's wrap. And even further than that, Jesus is the one who moved from heaven to earth to surround himself with sinners. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. We would do well to follow his lead in this regard. Jesus roamed around on purpose. May we be those types that roam around on purpose, that slow down just a little bit, that intentionally slow down to see if we can see and make some disciples. But Jesus didn't just go and see, take a little vacation, a little staycation, and look around and go, man, this is jacked up. This is a bad situation. Why, I ask, why would a dude like Levi leave his place of business where he makes money and come and follow Jesus? Verse 28, I think, tells us that Jesus had a reputation. Look at verse 28. Um, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Leaving everything. Jesus had to have had a reputation for this dude to come and follow him. Now, I know we're all saying in here, well, it was Jesus. It was Jesus. Of course, Jesus rolled up on me right now. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, you want me to roll with you? Cool. It's no problem. But he had in that time for somebody to just go, man, why would they leave their fishing nets? Why would they do these things? If we had checked the, 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 his rap sheet, he had a, an extensive reputation. How did he pick up Peter? He went out fishing with him. And immediately he said, man, throw your net off. He said, man, I've been fishing all night long. I know what I'm doing. It's my job. I've been working all night. Ain't nobody finna throw their fishing net. Listen, listen, I'm Jesus. Throw your fishing net over here. You're going to catch some fish. When they caught the fish, he said what? Yo, man, I'm a sinner. I don't know what I'm doing. What, 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 what we got to do to get together? He built a reputation. 
And so what, what we see here is Jesus had a reputation. He was a powerful teacher, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4. He was a victorious exorcist. He was a dynamic healer. He was an incredible miracle worker. He sought people. He was sought out by people. So Jesus had an impeccable reputation. Most with that type of reputation wouldn't surround themselves with rough people. In contrast, when we got a decent reputation... We do everything in our power not to mess it up by being seen with the wrong kinds of people. What happens when a politician is on the campaign trail? They want to be seen with the right kind of people. They want to kiss the babies and wave at the folks and shake the hands of the veterans. But they can't be in no back room. They can't have the picture snap with them in the, in the wrong situation. Why? Because you can end up on Fox indecently exposed, lose your job. But in the eyes of the watching world, that's what Jesus did. He didn't mind being seen around the wrong folks. He had a reputation of love, compassion, mercy, grace, and healing. And I would say to us, and I'm challenged this morning, what's your reputation? What's my reputation? Jesus associated with people of ill reputation. So we have to understand, let me put it in the context a little bit. Tax collectors were social outcasts who commonly used their position to cheat people. But there are more, there's, more, there's a little bit more to it. What if you were a sellout to your people? What if you were the one that manipulated your own people for the sake of the government? What if you robbed and stole and bullied your own community? Folks that you have been raised around, you take their money from them to give it to the government that's oppressing you. So these people were outcasts and they were hated by their own community. Man, I don't mess with them. They're the ones that give us... Now, it's funny in Baltimore because we, we, we find a similar situation. You got a young man that sits out on the corner and he's selling poison in your community. He's hurting our community. So I don't want to associate with him. I don't told him to get off the stoop, but he's still out here hurting other children, hurting the people in the neighborhood. Hurt, why are you going to sell the, the, to young children and young women? And he's going, man, I got to make this bread. And it's the same when we see a tax collector here. He's a collaborator with the enemy. And so as Jews, they're going, man, we don't mess with them. They're outcasts and they can't come. They can't be in the covenant people. They're, they're, they're sinful. They're wicked. So they're collaborators. They're God's enemies. They're our enemies and they're God's enemies. But then you see Jesus as someone with such a high standing in the community, sought after, healing the sick. He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. People love him and are fawning all over him. And, 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 and rather than say, nah, get up on a pedestal out front and say, see, see that young brother over there selling taxes? We don't need to be around folk like him. Nah, Jesus walks right by that same tax collector, that same stoop and says, nah, listen, young brother, come and walk with me. The people who willfully turn their backs on decency and morality for their own gain and the demise of others. These are the thugs, the drug dealers, the prostitutes, the habitual offenders, the world, the woefully drug addicted. These are the folks we immediately go to, go to when we see a picture like this. But when I look at Jesus, he spends times with these folks in, on, on purpose. Yeah. 
Dave Mathis says it like this, Jesus sees associating with unbelievers as a strategic place to call for repentance. We have the opportunity, man, if we slow down a little bit, to stop and say to a young guy, man, like, what's going on? How, how is it that you got into this? And we could begin to peel back the layers of the pain, the heartache, the, the hunger, the, 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 the years of just, man, trauma. Now, rather than him being an enemy, he's a, he's a hurting person that I need to share the life and the love of Jesus Christ with. Standing out in Baltimore just earlier this week, I met a brother... And I said, man, I mean, I see you out here hustling, you working. And um, he was downtown uh, valeting cars. I said, man, brother, tell me, tell me about, um, tell me the two, tell me the best and the worst thing about Baltimore. He said, man, the best thing, the worst thing about Baltimore is the murder. It's the murder. I said, well, tell me the best thing about Baltimore. Ah. Ain't no best thing. And I almost started to cry right there on the steps talking to this guy because I said, man, he ain't just some hardened dude. This is a dude that's just been hurt time and time again. I said, well, brother, do you got kids? He said, yeah, I got five kids. I said, oh, man, so how, I mean, you raise them here in the city? He said, yeah, and every day I wish I save up every dollar to get them out. And I said, man, brother, I, man, I, moved, I just moved here with my three kids. For what? For what? Yeah, I just moved here with my three kids, man. And that's why I asked you what's the best and the worst thing, because I'm still trying to figure it out. Why would you do that? I said, man, it's funny you ask that, because I serve a God that came and moved to a rough place for me. So, man, I don't know what your situation is, but I'm just saying... I'm just saying, man, I know there's hope in a city like Baltimore because Jesus is here. And he's got hope for you and your kids, too. It don't got to be like that. So immediately in a two-minute conversation on the corner, we done peel back and all the way got to the gospel just like that. And I'm not saying that to brag on myself because that's a scary situation. You don't know what's going to happen. But what I'm saying is it was... I, I was mind blown at how easy it was to talk to a rough looking dude. And so I'm saying to us, I'm convicted as I'm reading this, and Jesus intentionally was walking around in the streets to do that. Sometimes we miss easy layups just because we won't go to the hole. We won't even step in the pocket because we go, nah, it's, I'm going to get roughed up. You might get, but you might get an easy layup too. And so. Jesus had high standing. He had a reputation, but he sought fellowship with the weak and the weary. He consciously went after those who seemed like they rejected God. And so this is, he, had, he sought it as a strategic place. Man, you know how easy it is to tell somebody to turn on the light when it's in the dark? Many of the folks that we walk past, they, they already know how broken the world is, and you ain't got to do much to convince them that there's hope out there because they're looking for it. So let's be strategic about that. We must be honest with ourselves. And in and, 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 and a lot of this point, man, we can't be afraid of what people will think about us. If there's a Facebook post with me standing on the corner, 
man, I can't be worried about if somebody drives past, what will they think about me if I'm standing out here talking to this transgender prostitute out here on Charles Street? Man, will they look at me funny? Will they say Charlie's slipping up? He don't know what he's doing? I can't, be, I, can't be, I can't be afraid of what may happen. Jesus didn't. Look at, what, look at what they said about God. Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking a form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Jesus put his reputation on the line to engage with hard people like you and me. And it could have cost him everything, but instead he thought of the reward that was greater than even his own comfort. I want to make something clear, and I don't want to, I don't want to push no buttons or nothing like that. Many of us are not coming into contact with rough people, with drug dealers, with prostitutes. We don't even know any. Don't even know their name, don't know their stories. They ain't even been able to come into contact with us, so it's easy to think that this is for somebody else. Listen, I'm saying we have to be willing to put ourselves on the line put ourselves on the line and become, get off the fence of are we here to really see people's lives change for Jesus? And go, you know what? Nah, I'm going to see what happens. I want to see the gospel put to work. This wasn't a cool kind of saying I put together. I want to see it. I want to see men's lives change. From, from, I want to see women become, go from baby mamas to wives. I want to see dope dealers go from, from selling dope to being deacons. I want to see that happen. I want to see, man, and, and so when I see those things and I see it in the scriptures, and I'm going, did that end too? Did the power of the God, did it lose its power at some point? No, because when I, the old church I grew up in singing, it, the blood didn't lose its power. So if the blood didn't lose its power, why am I afraid to pull the trigger when, it, when I'm on the block? So nobody seems to be afraid to pull the trigger in real life. And we see the blood sprayed all over the streets. But nobody is spreading the blood of Jesus over the streets. And so we have to be those people that say, nah, you know what? I'm moving. I'm moving to a place of total dependence on God, like I'm standing on this thing. And then I'm going to go, you know, I want to see what God can do in the midst of this. Listen, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And a, and a lack of care for those that we, don't, we see on the street. Because we can get numb to it. Because we can get love to it. Man, listen, the opposite of faith is not heresy. It's indifference. That's what Eli Weiss will say. It's not that we become heretics. It becomes, man, we have the most precious and powerful thing on this earth. And we don't use it for good. What's so interesting is when I talk about hard people... Some of the hardest people in men of our lives are the nice people that are all around us. Some of the easiest people for us to reach is the one that seems farthest off. But some of the hardest people for us to love and to reach are the ones that seem like they have good moral lives. They're the ones that think they're good. They're the ones that, the ones that crucified Jesus was not the streets. It was not the thugs and the prostitutes. And it was not the tax collectors. It was the folks that went to church, that went to synagogue, that knew the law. 
So even in our own mind, we have to begin to think, man, the heart is hard and not the exterior that we see. The heart is hard. So rather than me looking at the city and going, man, those are bad people, those are good people, we fall into that trap. I begin to say, no, even these pristine, nice-looking folks that seem to have it all together, their heart may be harder than the guy that's on the corner selling the dope because they have no need for a God and they're free to fly above the poverty and the pain. Man, so are we known as those who are just nice guys, nice people? Or are we known as men and women who love Jesus and passionately pursue after them? Are we known as good neighbors? Are we devoted Christians that it not only is an internal attribute, but it's an external disposition? Jesus had a reputation because not, it wasn't just his talk, but it was his walk as well. I pray that we would be the same. Now, moving forward, for Jesus, it was not enough to see hard people or be seen with them. He radically engaged them, right? Again, Jesus' reputation was purposeful. It gave him credibility. Gave him credibility. Let's look at verse 29 and 30. And Levi made made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus reclined. Jesus reclined at the table with dirty, dirty... See what I'm saying, brother? I almost done fell back on this thing. Jesus reclined. I tried to recline on here, and the thing didn't... Jesus reclined at the table with dirty, rotten sinners. Jesus made disciples of a tax collector. The tax collector is so imp- the tax collector is so so enraptured with Jesus, so in, so ca- off, caught off guard by his love and his compassion for him. What does he do? His natural response, man, let's throw a party. I got to introduce all my people to him. I want everybody to see, man. I got a new dude now, and it's good. So the scandal is not where Jesus was, but the scandal is who Jesus is associating with. One scholar put it like this, being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremonially rich uh, symbolic symbol of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness towards anyone with whom one shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Jesus was being offered and offering friendship to the worst people in their society. So he used the table. He used reclining at the table. Now, it's not something to say, yo, y'all come in here, let me show you. No, no, no. He leveled the playing field to say, no, all are welcome. So now it's one thing to say, man, let's, let, I see you, man, I talk to you another time. But it's another thing to say, man, come to my crib. Meet my wife and my kids. and Man, let's eat, bro. Some of the, one of the things that we, we have in the hood that's, that's spectacular that I think often gets overlooked is we know how to celebrate well. We have many feasts. We don't call them feasts. We just call them barbecues. And so... 
We like to hang out. We like to talk. I don't care. I mean, you, I mean who, you, who you here with, man? I don't even know, bro. I just, I just seen y'all was having a party. I, man, come on in, man. Get you a plate, bro. It's all good. And so that's what's so dope about this is he's going, man, you become family. I've made you a safe place for us to engage and interact with one another. So by reclining at the table and having a meal with these folks, Jesus has placed himself in a position to speak powerfully and potently to unbelievers. What happens sometimes, even as a church, is we just hand out the food, but we never sit down to eat with people. So we're still in a position of giving, but we're never in a position of breaking bread together. So people see us in this elevated position, but we're never in a, in a, in a situation where we can interact with one another. And so they're going, man, I, 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 I can't ever be around y'all because y'all have it all together. But man, if you only came to my house and saw my trash is overflowing, my kids is rough, and you know what I mean, and all this kind of stuff, and my TV's broke, don't worry about that. And, and so we, we become this kind of safe haven to have the actual conversation. One author goes on to say his close proximity to sinners doesn't mean he's coddling sin, but that he's getting close enough to confront unbelief with precision and grace. See, because when we're at the table together and you begin to break down, I said, man, well, tell me your story. What happened? Why is it that you don't, that you don't trust Christians? Man, well, you know, I grew up in a church and da 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 now I'm able in a safe environment to go, man, listen, I'm, I'm sorry that you were hurt. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. But listen, Jesus, Jesus isn't that person. It's bigger than that. But now we, we're able to get into the nooks and crannies of each other's lives, and I'm able to look into your eyes and not be some, some, some far-off entity. I think I put it like this. In our era... In military uh, fighting, we use long-distance fighting. We use a lot of snipers. Snipers can be far off. They see a mark out in the distance. They know he should go down, so they put their mark on him. He goes down. We've won. So I see this go on in Christian circles as well when we do apologetics online. Facebook is the perfect place to be a Christian sniper. Where now you see a comment stream, you see a line of an uh, article or something, you see somebody put up something, a, a black Hebrew Israelite probably posted something because you don't put that you a G, you follow Jesus and they're going, oh, you're a sellout and all this kind of stuff. And now you done lined up your mark, got your hands on the keys, the trigger, and then boom, you soon off a shot hoping that he falls. But what happens when you recline at the table with somebody is you're in a knife fight, hand-to-hand combat. So now I have to engage you. I got to smell your hot breath. I got to get up close to you. And now we interact differently. We wrestle with one another, but you can't wrestle with me as, as, as a far-off entity, a Christian dude, just that done sold out because you ain't black no more because you believe in a white Jesus. Nah, you got to sit here and talk to me face-to-face in the comfort of my home. 
So when the gays and homosexuals come after, I, I look forward to the day. I told my partner Trevor, um, our, my church plant partner, I said, Trevor, they're going to come after us, bro. I pray that if we preach the gospel, do it, if we do it well enough, we're going to get hostility. Most likely the hostility is going to come from the gay community. All right, cool. Let's do that. But I said, man, what if we had to infiltrate them by being their friends? What happens if they know my name and my kids' names? Can they defame me and hate me then? We done ate and break bread together. They will. That's fine. But it's harder for you to come out the gate strong when you know, man, Charlie, he's a good dude, man. I really love him. And he can cook some chicken, doc. <laughs> so a lot of the armors that we have, we can disarm it if we reclined at the table with folks. But we don't get to recline. And we're not coddling their sin. We ain't making a pass. But we are engaged in knife fights over the table. So what this means is we've got to be aware of bougie, uppity Christian attitude that just kind of looks down on folks because they don't got it all together. Nah, you got to be willing to invite them into your life and you got to be willing to, to, get, to sneak in the back door on them too. I just want to be your friend, bro. You ain't no project to me. I just want to hang. So without realizing it, we can separate ourselves like the Pharisees from sinful people all around us by choosing only to associate with, eat, associate with, eat with those who look like us, act like us, dress like us, and know what we know, live how we live. Excluding ourselves from our diverse community. I'm not saying that you can reach every one of them by doing that, but I am saying like Paul, to those outside the law, I became under the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may, that I may share with them in its blessings. Am I willing to do that for the sake of man, me, making some more disciples? Paul aspired to reach as many as he could. And that meant strategically laying aside his rights and privileges so that he could get up close and personal and share the gospel with people. This can be hard for us sometimes because we'll fill our calendars very quickly with appointments and meetings and things like that and never leave the margin for gospel opportunity. Before long, we can look around and we realize we don't know any non-Christian. In a city filled with non-Christians, we cannot know non-Christians. That's a scary thing. And I think Jesus reclined for a, week, a reason. Look at this. But Jesus just isn't interested in eating with some good folks and having a chicken box and have, passing the salt, pepper, and the ketchup. He had a deep love for the people, and he asked to bring them. He seeks their ultimate good. Look at the last thing. Jesus provides a remedy. So it's not just that we roam around, it's not just that we have a reputation, and it's not just that we recline at the table. That's getting us to the point, but I ain't getting, that ain't the point. The point is that we provide a remedy. Look at verse 30. Verse 30, it says this, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumble at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've come not, I have come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. 
So Jesus came. I came to sit. I came to roam. I came to build his reputation so that I can bring you the remedy for your sin-sick situation. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me that, man, we can do all this friendship evangelism. We can hang with folks and still miss the point of getting to the gospel. We'll go two years, three years hanging out with people and never get to the, never get to the punchline. And they say, man, you're a nice guy. We really like you. <laughs> All right, cool. But we never get to the point. We've hinted at it. We've shared a Facebook post. We put up an Instagram picture, maybe a little verse of scripture, hinted at maybe we're a Christian, but we never pull the punches. We always pull the punches. But if we never get to the confrontational moment where we're actually able to share the gospel and call them to repentance, we've missed the mark. We've missed the mark. We put ourselves in close proximity so that I may call you to repentance. So I know there's somebody here that's going, man, Jesus walked around, he was... He was good, but man, the whole reason Jesus came, the whole reason Jesus gave his life, the whole reason he was healing folk and and helping people was that he may call them to repentance. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They needed a savior. He was that savior, but he wanted to point them to their ultimate good. He wasn't satisfied to just heal them of their infirmity. He wanted to satisfy their eternal infirmity. So it's, it's, it's funny that we would sterilize and stay back when Jesus entered into the pain and the heartache in order to remedy their situation. I read a story one time of Dr. Kent Bradley, 33 years old, a physician that worked for Samaritan's Purse. He said, I thought a lot about the moment when I was infected with Ebola. I will never know for certain when it happened, but I do remember one overnight shift about nine days before I got sick. A woman came into the ER with her daughter. When I went to check on her, she was very sick. At one point, the daughter took her mother into the bathroom because she had diarrhea. We needed to get her out of the emergency room and into the Ebola treatment unit, but her daughter was incredibly distrustful of the situation and of us. I had to counsel her extensively to reassure her that we were trying to do the best we could for her mother. To that conversation, to have that conversation, I took off my mask, took off my gloves, and took off my apron. I probably held her hand or put my arm around her shoulder as I often do. I don't don't think I was infected by her mother, but since the daughter had taken her into the bathroom, there's a chance she didn't wash her hands after helping her mom. The mother died by morning, and a post-mortem test showed that she did indeed have Ebola. I began to feel warm. A little more than a week later, I took malaria tests. They all came back negative. I thought maybe I had dengue fever. I called our team leader. He sent a physician colleague to my house in full protective gear. After two more negative malaria tests, I knew that it would be in isolation for three more days. 
I grew sicker, I grew sicker and weaker. On the fourth day, the team leader came to my bedroom window with news. Kent, we got your results. It's positive for Ebola. And I didn't know what to think. In, a, in, a, in an emergency room in Africa, a man stepped into a situation where he sought to help someone and removed all his protective gear in order to engage, to better help them along the path. He removed all the protective mechanisms, all the sterile environments that would help him to fight off the infection that the person had. But listen, unlike Kit Hughes, the sin that I got can't affect Jesus. Jesus says, listen, I've come into the world, man, not, not, not so y'all can do all the right things. No, I've come to bring you closer into relationship with me. Your sin sickness can't come off on me. As a matter of fact, I'm the cure for your sin sickness. So when Jesus comes into your situation, my situation, he doesn't just say, man, I'm afraid of your infectious leprosy of sin, so I'm going to put on these gloves. No, he touches us. He touches the leprosy, and the leprosy is healed. Jesus is not afraid of the demons that may bog us down. No, the demons shudder when Jesus walks into the room. So when it comes to sin, it is no different. He can be in company, and the company is influenced by his presence and not the other way around. So Jesus is the antidote for the ills of the soul. So the point and purpose of roaming, having a reputation, uh, reclining, is so that we can lovingly share the gospel. At some point, you got to have the confrontation so that they can be fulfilled, so that there can be a remedy for their sin sickness. So we're so concerned about what may happen to us, what may happen to me, how it's hard on me, and we're not concerned about their eternal well-being. And so I'm going, no, 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 no. Jesus is saying, if you proclaim the gospel, what we say, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But we don't pull the trigger. This is the scariest point for most Christians in evangelism, sharing the gospel. We are message bearers. We must be reminded that the salvation, it, listen, salvation is our responsibility. I know Pastor Joel done taught you that. It's not your responsibility. You can't save nobody. But what if you begin to share it more often and more and more people begin to come to know Jesus Christ? This simply means that we are not the cure to anyone's issues, but we have the grand opportunity to bring the sin sick to the physician, Jesus Christ. Man, this is what we have the opportunity to do. And then there must be a point of response to that gospel proclamation. We share the gospel, but we must articulate the means by which someone gains access to the remedy. Look at this. Verse 32, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance because he is the answer. You don't bring anything. You don't got enough Bible verses you've memorized. You don't have enough good deeds. You haven't paid enough tithes. You haven't visited churches often. You ain't helped enough old ladies across the street. You ain't read enough Bible. You ain't done enough to do it. Jesus is saying, no, come to me, and I will give you rest. 
So there must be a confession, repentance, and faith, profession of faith, so that there may be resurrection and life, and Christ will save you. My wife's the RN by trade, and she doesn't have the power to diagnose. She's not trained to diagnose, but she is trained to give you the prescription that you need. We need to begin to see ourselves as nurses on the block that walk around with the gospel medication, handing out pills so that they may come and, and have a remedy for their sin sickness in Jesus. But thanks be to God, man, Jesus isn't like no doctor that's behind closed doors that we can't get to. He's not locked up, he ain't far away, and you ain't gotta have a um, medica- um, good, good thing you ain't gotta have insurance to get to him because a lot of us will be in a lot of trouble. But the most qualified physician for the sin sickness in our souls, the most qualified physician for the sin sickness in Baltimore is Jesus Christ. So we stand on him, we proclaim him, and we walk in confidence that he will bring men from death to life. Jesus purposely engages hard people like you and I for our ultimate well-being, and that is salvation. How many of you are just grateful to God that Jesus roamed around and found you? How many of you are, man, like, I have to remember this. How many of you are just happy to know that Jesus didn't forget about you, didn't pass you by, and didn't think that you were too far off, that you didn't need salvation? How many of you are just happy somebody was able, had the guts enough to say, man, do you know about Jesus? Have you heard how he can transform your life and, 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 and deal with the deepest hurts and pains of your soul? Today, we have the opportunity to respond to the gospel in such a way as to make us, empower us to be those who go and tell others. So, man, today, as we reflect on Jesus, man, I pray that he would turn and soften our hearts to those that are all around us, whose hearts are hard, but he has the answer and the antidote. May we proclaim Jesus to all those around us with the confidence, with the confidence, that he can transform and save their lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace. Give us, man, give us gospel confidence. Don't let us be afraid of the enemy. Don't let us be afraid of the schemes. Lord, I pray against fear right now in the name of Jesus. That you would, Lord, that, that you would transform. Man, you walked around and found Levi, a tax collector, and he gladly followed you and then became a proclaimer of your word. Lord, I pray for a gospel revival here in the Garden Church, in West Baltimore, and Baltimore as a whole. Lord, that as disciples of Jesus Christ go out sharing the good news, that, man, we would have more people on the streets just proclaiming your goodness. And that we will see men and women and children come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that they may go out and be disciples. Lord, empower us with your spirit. Empower us with your spirit. And Lord, I pray even for some of us who, who, who become numb to the way this city is, to the brokenness, to the homelessness, to the poverty, to the violence. Lord, would you sensitize our hearts? Would you break our hearts again? Lord, would you put us in a position, help us to reorganize our 
calendars. Help us to reorganize our time so that we would have access to men and women so that we can share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And Lord, I look forward to the stories of men and women that say, man, I didn't know about Jesus, but somebody from the garden walked up to me and said, man, why don't you come and follow Jesus? Lord, I I look forward to the stories of the disciples that are made as a result of people walking in light of the gospel that were burdened by the, 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 the brokenness and that moved with power into the community. Would you do what I pray? In Jesus' name, amen.